Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Nancy Yan, and I'm one of the hosts of this channel. With me today is Dr. Tom Mould, Professor of History and Anthropology at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. We'll be talking about his book, Overthrowing the Queen, Telling Stories of Welfare in America, which won the Brian McConnell Book Award from the International Society of Contemporary Legend Research. Overthrowing the Queen explores personal struggle, personal stories of struggle and hope, as well as stereotypical legends of fraud and abuse in order to offer a more accurate view of poverty, provides practical strategies for storytelling, for social justice, and propose bold new approaches to the study of oral narrative. So, Tom, um, hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore podcast. Glad to have you here. Thanks so much, Nancy. Uh, Happy to be here. Um, First, I want to say that, uh, you know, what an excellent book you've written, and on such an important topic. Um, When I was a kid, I uh, used to stay up all night reading these good books and then end up all sleepy for school the next day. And I actually found myself in a similar situation reading your book. I would plan to read like maybe about 30 minutes before I went to bed. Next thing I know, it's like 3 a.m. And, um, you know, to be honest, that doesn't really happen very often for an academic book because I see academic books um, more as daytime reading. I mean, now I do. This is not counting the time I was, you know, in grad school, which is, you know, academic reading is any time of the day, any time of the night, too. Um, so I found your book was really well written, really well researched, and it's such um, an important topic right now. Your book addresses the negative stereotypes and misperceptions often associated with uh, receiving public assistance, particularly the type of public assistance that people label as "quote unquote" welfare. And uh, it's a really important. I think it's a really important and timely topic. Um, at this moment, um, given that so many states are ending pandemic-related federal uh, unemployment programs early because of this mistaken belief that the people who participate in these programs are like lazy moochers who don't want to work, and that's an idea that you address in the book. But you actually started uh, thinking about these ideas 10 years ago, and I, I guess that actually, you know, I should say that, you know, this uh, you know, this book will always be timely. Um, in your book, you recount a conversation you had a uh, that you had with a woman about the Affordable Care Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. So, um, could you say a little bit more about that conversation and how it sparked your interest in exploring uh, the stories that people share about welfare? What was what was it about that conversation that struck you? Um, that struck you and sparked your interest in doing this research project? Sure. So it was uh, 2011. um, And that was a period where ACA, the Affordable Care Act had been proposed. It had sort of been in place for a little bit, but they were still making tweaks. So it was uh, an incredibly active uh, topic of conversation, um, cocktail parties, um, among really just kind of the range of uh, the general public in the United States. And I found myself at a party and the party was pretty mixed in terms of some incredibly wealthy donors, some, you know, a poor faculty schlub um, and maybe everybody in between. And um, the conversation of ACA came up because uh, we had just sort of been generally talking about the kind of the state of affairs. And the woman I was speaking with 
um, it was clear from our conversation, disagreed with me basically on everything and I with her, um, you know, and I was desperately looking for an out and looking for a place of common ground. And so I mentioned that, um, you know, that at least we could all agree that the emergency room is a terrible place as a primary physician, that people needed to have preventative health care. She said, yes, I agree. But, and this is where the story starts. She said, but all those people will just take and take and take. And so the more we give, the more they'll take. For example, and then she told a story that I had been hearing in the 1980s when I was going through high school and honestly hadn't heard since and thought had died away. And I was shocked to hear it. And here's the story she told me. She said, just the other day, I was in the grocery store and I was in the checkout line. There was a woman in front of me and she had all these um, you know, groceries, et cetera, including some cans of dog food. And the woman at the register said, I'm sorry, ma'am, you know, on your, with your food stamps, with your SNAP, um, which is the Supplemental Nutrition um, Act. Oh, I'm going to get that acronym wrong. But SNAP is the current pro, uh, current name acronym for the food stamp program. She said, you know, you can't you can't buy dog food uh, with food stamps. And she said, this is ridiculous. You know, fine. And she slammed the dog food down on the counter and you know, marched back while everybody was waiting. Marched back to the um, the, the meat counter, got some steaks, brought them back, and said, fine, my dog will eat these instead. And then she got her groceries and left. And the woman said, you know, described sort of being there incredulous with her fellow um, grocery sh store um, shoppers at the kind of audacity of this woman. Uh, so she's telling me this story. And of course, I had heard versions of the story, as I said, since the 1980s. And so I pressed her just a little bit gently and said, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's terrible. You know, when was this and where was this? And she'd started the story with just the other day. And yet when I asked her some basic questions about when and where, well, I don't remember. It was a while ago. Um, and so sort of my alarm bells went off, which is to say that it, it sounded like, felt like a legend. Um, and by a legend, what I mean is a story that mm -hmm. is told about the past. It's usually told in third person, but this was told in first person, but it has sort of these, um, generic conventions. In other words, it has these formula, these bits that people kind of recycle, um, in, in multiple ways. So it's a version of a story I had heard before. And there was an element of doubt. Like I heard this story and because I'd heard so many versions of it before, I, I doubted its veracity, at least in its entirety. Of course, it could have been true, just didn't feel true. So um, it mm -hmm. played me all night. Um, and I will give you the compressed version, which is to say, I went home and talked to my wife about it. I started talking to co colleagues about it. I said, you know, can you believe these stories are still being told? And they're like, yeah, where have you been? Um, and I was looking for a, a research project at the time. I just wrapped up a project on Latter-day Saints and was looking to do something with a social justice bent to it. And this seemed to be a perfect candidate. So that started um, a kind of a, you know, this, this research that, um, you know, seven, eight years later and hundreds of interviews later ended up as uh, overthrowing the queen, uh, telling stories of welfare in America. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the title of your book is Overthrowing the Queen and the queen, um, I'm assuming, is the idea of the welfare queen. So can you talk a little bit more about what exactly is the welfare queen and what are some of, you know, some of the examples. I mean, you mentioned a little bit in, in uh, the story that you just told. So, but let's 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 refresh everybody's memory about what exactly a welfare queen is. Sure. So, the stereotypical welfare queen is racialized as black, is gendered as female, um, is described as someone who sits at home, doesn't work, 
um, has multiple children, often with multiple fathers, um, you know, sort of lazy, but also lives this life of luxury that the welfare queen, the reason the queen gets assigned to this, um, this, this name is because the idea is that she's able with government funds to buy steaks, to buy crab legs, to drive a Cadillac, to wear fur and jewelry and have mm-hmm. your nails and hair done at salons. Um, so in that way, the welfare queen is really the antithesis of the kind of the American dream, but it's also the antithesis of the sort of majority identity population in the United States. In other words, it's, it's isolating racial minorities, it's isolating women, it's isolating the poor, and it's describing all the negative attributes um, that we sort of have in, in U.S. society to this one figure. Mm-hmm. And it's not really just a, it's not just limit. It, it's ta- uh, the idea of the welfare queen is basically like an archetype for all recipients of public assistance, right? So it's about living large on the government's dime. Um, yes, I think that uh, certainly the welfare queen is a stand-in. It's really the poster child for public assistance in the United States. And so those attributes, while gendered, certainly include men um, and certainly include people beyond just African-American um, recipients. So, you know, still we're going to stereotype these stories, stereotype people of color. So Latino and Hispanic people, um, really any immigrant to the United States, um, often get swept into this, this category. Um, white, not so much, despite the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, just by sheer numbers, of course, white people are receive public assistance more than any other group. Now, What's misleading about that is percentage-wise, people of color receive more public assistance in this country, but that begs the question, why are people of color more impoverished than white people? I think that's the question we need to be asking, not why are they on welfare, but why are, rather why are they not, why do they not have access to capital and um, you know, economic resources in the way that white people have traditionally in this country? So it opens up a lot of bigger questions, uh, but you're exactly right. The welfare queen is used as shorthand for a way to demonize anybody receiving public assistance. Right. And I think that your um, your, your comment about uh, the larger picture and raises like more, uh, it raises more questions about um, uh, uh, the system which engenders poverty. Um, and I think that's, that's something that we should definitely return to. But I want to talk a little bit more about the origins of the welfare queen. So you had a very, I mean, I think it's really great that you were able to kind of like trace the genesis of the uh, welfare queen um, archetype. And it goes back to Reagan. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So the term itself, uh, we can trace back to Reagan, but actually really, I mean, Reagan popularizes it. It actually is coined by a journalist uh, even a couple of years before Reagan starts telling the story. But honestly, the archetype goes back to the the origins of the colonial period of this country and the poor laws, et cetera. In other words, we've been demonizing people who receive public assistance since um, since the United States from a kind of European domination um, period, since that very inception. Um, but in terms of the welfare queen, you're exactly right. So in 1976, Ronald Reagan runs for the Republican uh, nomination for president against Gerald Ford, who, as we know, when Nixon resigned, Ford had become president. So Ford had not run in a national election. Uh, and this was his first time. So it was a, a bit bold for a Republican uh, challenger. 
Um, but Reagan made pretty good headway, and it was actually a pretty exciting um, convention that year. And he campaigned uh, with this story. Um, and it was a story about Linda Taylor. She was a woman in Chicago, and her news story broke had broken a few years earlier, uh, basically a case of welfare fraud. So here was a woman who was receiving um, aid for you know multiple dead husbands and for children that she didn't have in her home. And she, she was a liar. She was a cheat. Um, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Josh Levin, who's a journalist, wrote a book called The Queen um, and unpacked just sort of how troubling Linda Taylor was. So there's no doubt about it that Linda Taylor was a criminal. The problem is, is that Linda Taylor is not a representative example of public mm-hmm. assistance, but Reagan used her as such. And so mm-hmm. as he's on the stump speech, he starts telling the story of this, this, and he never named her, but he had this woman in Chicago with this many aliases and this much money that she's built out of the government and this many fake social security cards, et cetera, et cetera, um, to basically scare people into you know, this idea that government overreach, the, the public assistance is too generous. And um, and so even before Reagan starts telling that story, the welfare queen gets coined by some of the journalists who are writing about Linda Taylor. Of course, Reagan then starts telling the story. Journalists recognize the story. They report Reagan's stump speech as sort of this welfare queen. And then from there, it sort of becomes a household um, term. Yeah. What I thought was really interesting about Linda Taylor is that here is a true story, right? It actually, you know, Linda Taylor is a real person, an actual person who did commit all these crimes. Um, but she becomes a legend, not in the sense that it's, you know, that she, uh, that you know, she has an extraordinary story, but you know what a lot of people recognize as urban legend and what folklorists now call contemporary legend, um, and. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, she gives genesis to this uh, legend because it's seen as something, as you say, it's broadly true rather than a specific case of fraud. And I, one thing, I, there are two things I want to talk about. First is like how she becomes written as black, because from what I understand in reading up about Linda Taylor, she was, it was, her ethnicity was ambiguous, wasn't it? Or am I wrong on that? Or was it, you know, was she definitely black? Well, she definitely passed uh, as non uh, as a non-person of color, as, as white. Um, mm-hmm. It seems pretty clear, however, that she also regularly identified as African-American, as black. Um, but you're right that her identity sort of, she plays with that because she was also playing, I mean, she was a grifter. She, you know, she was constantly... Um, running these kind of scams, some of which may have included murder, some of which certainly included child abuse. Um, so yes, there is definite ambiguity there. And and to be clear, Reagan never call, never says she's black, mm-hmm. but that's where dog whistling comes in. So yeah. he didn't have to, um, you know, he puts her in Chicago. She's so she, now she's urban. He describes, mm-hmm. you know, in, in 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 later kinds of articulations describes her in ways that would have alerted people to kind of symbols of you know whether it was designer clothing furs and then Cadillacs and so the Cadillac by that period in time had already become associated as a symbol of wealth in the African American community partly because when the Cadillac was initially um, launched as a car um, dealerships were not allowed to sell it to black people. It was, mm-hmm. it was meant to be a mm-hmm. symbol of elite white wealth, but black people sort of 
you know, heard that and said, absolutely not, you know, and they found ways to, you know, they gave money to white people to buy the cars for them, et cetera. But ultimately the Cadillac became a symbol of, of black wealth. And so when the welfare Cadillac becomes sort of attached to these stories, there's no doubt that who Reagan is talking about has been racialized as black. And mm. Reagan does it again and again and again. He tells additional stories about young bucks, this sort of young male who's going in and, you know, buys an orange with food stamps, takes a change and buys a, a bottle of vodka, which even, even when food stamps were used like dollars and not the EBT cards that are electric benefits transfer, that's like a credit card that we have today, even when it was these kind of coupons, you couldn't get enough money back. Um, you could only get up to a dollar back. So that whole orange vodka story didn't work at all. But again, Reagan said young bucks. Bucks was absolutely racialized at that time. He didn't say black, mm -hmm. but he dog whistled to everybody listening. So that's a big piece of the story. The other piece of the story is in the 1960s, that's when the welfare system opened up uh, to people of color. Mm -hmm. um, it, the way it had been administered basically made sure that it sort of enacted kind of these sort of archaic, um, at least in the Northeast, but just these kind of Jim Crow era laws that disenfranchised black people in the same way that black people were disenfranchised at the voting booth. Um, in the 1960s, that changes. And so welfare then does start to get a number of African-American recipients. And that's when the sort of racial piece, welfare itself becomes racialized. And then when you add Reagan's stories and these other additional stories with dog whistling, the queen becomes racialized. Mm -hmm. Right. And this idea, this welfare legend um, really takes root in the American imagination, as you suggest in the book, as a hegemonic narrative about poor people and not just, you know, as you, as we were just talking about, not just about poor people, about, but about black people. Um, you know, and when I think of welfare queen, the, you know, I think society and, you know, that's the, the stereotype is of a uh, black woman with many children who keeps having children in order to get uh, more uh, more governmental support. And that, you know, that supposedly is her, her stick. And I want to I want to read a couple of things from, from, you know, from what you've written in the book. And uh, I, it goes back to the idea of fears and American and uh, the American dream. So first you say legends provide. I'm going to quote, quote, legends provide socially acceptable ways to express anxieties, fears, or desires, end quote. And another another place you say, it's actually in the same paragraph, uh, stories of the welfare queen are far less effective at tracking fraud than tracking fears about fraud. And then you say, virtually detail for detail, the welfare queen and her story stand in direct opposition to the most fundamental cultural myth of this country, the American dream. So... Um, going back to the idea of American dream, what do you mean by that? How is this welfare queen legend so connected to the American dream? That's a great question. So I would argue it's connected a number of ways. It's connected structurally as a narrative. It's also connected historically. Um, I'll start with the story part and then we'll move to the history part. Uh, but if you take the welfare queen and you take the American dream and you line them up, Basically, line for line, they are the inverse of each other until you get to the end. So in the American dream, you know, you, oftentimes it's sort of, you know, you, you picture leave it to beaver, right? You've got this sort of white family picket fence, et cetera. And the welfare queen, you know, is not a family. It's a single parent. Right. Not white, but, right. but black, you right. know, um, 
it's seen as immoral, where the, the the American dream is this kind of fundamentally moral story. This the welfare queen story is fundamentally one of Im- immorality, whether it's because of transgressing transgressing uh, sexual norms of having children out of wedlock, or whether it's mm-hmm. about um, fraud, right? Um, using someone else's money. You know, the American dream is kind of you know two children. Welfare queen, of course, has like six. Um, but here's the problem: at the end. The, the, the conclusion of both of these stories is, and then they lived in life of luxury happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Well, if the welfare queen story ended with that person in sort of, you know, desperate poverty, unhappy, you know, in the streets, then it just becomes a, a sort of a, a mirror image of the American dream. It actually supports the American dream, right? Because it says, look, mm-hmm. they violated all the things. And so here's their punishment. But the welfare queen doesn't. It says they violated all these foundational you know, norms that the American dream espouses, and yet they still succeeded. And so it's a dangerous story. It's a story that challenges the foundational myth of this country. Mm-hmm. So that's the initial kind of structural piece. And it goes back to what you mentioned before, which is this is a story about fear. The welfare queen, it's not, it, it's that we fear that there are people out there who are not working hard and getting ahead of us. It's fear that the American dream doesn't work. It's fear that if poverty is not about individual failing, then it could happen to me. And it's fear that public aid could be a disincentive to work. So that's why we hold on to this story so much because it challenges so many core beliefs that we've sort of bought into as a country. Historically, the welfare queen also is tied into the story of the American dream. So, you know, we've got Horatio Alger writing in the 1860s, 1870s, and 80s, um, these ragged dick stories, right? And people often Mm -hmm. point to those stories as kind of the quintessential, you know, bootstrap myth, right? This hardworking, scrappy youth, you know, is moral, he works hard, and, you know, pulls himself up by bootstraps, and he succeeds. Um, but it's not until 1931 when James uh, Thurlow Adams publishes a book called, I want to say it's The American Epic, but he tried to publish it as The American Dream. But his publisher in 1931, in the middle of the Depression, said no one's going to spend money on a book about a dream. So he wouldn't let him name the book that, but he he did. I mean, the, uh, Adams does use the term over 30 times in his in his book. And it's very clear this book is a response to Roosevelt's New Deal, mm-hmm. pure and simple. He is appalled by what he sees Roosevelt doing. He is convinced, this is Adams, he is convinced that the New Deal is going to transform the sort of hardworking ethos of America into a, 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 a country of lazy people looking for handouts. And so he writes this book and talks about the American dream as a response to welfare pure and simple. And so the welfare queen really comes along. It's not surprising that we would create this, this sort of boogeyman, but in this case, a boogie woman, um, to remind us of the of the fears and the dangers, et cetera, of a government that is too generous with its aid. Do you think that um, because we have, because the American dream is really a fundamental belief that Americans have about has about the country that it also means that the welfare queen legend is also here to stay. 
um, because and I, I, you know, I'm thinking about this, and I, I think I need your help in thinking out this um, out thinking about this out loud. I'm wondering if it's some kind of symbiotic relationship, because the welfare queen story has to uphold in some way upholds the pillar and the structure of the American dream, so that we demonize, um, you know, we we punish the people who are poor. Um, because in a society that purports to be equal, that provides equal opportunity, there are some people who don't fulfill the American dream and people who don't embody the American dream. And therefore, we have to uh, find fault with their personal choices. And um, to do anything else might suggest that the structure for success in America is, is in fact, not successful. So success in America has to be attributed to a bootstrap mentality because, you know, labor exploitation and inheritance is not a good story to tell. And I'm not saying that all success in America is due to labor exploitation and inheritance, but there are certainly structures that favor certain kinds of success. So it makes me think that um, is well the welfare queen a necessary foil to the American dream. So as long as we think about the American dream as something that's possible, we also need the story of the welfare queen in order to punish and demonize poverty, um, government support. So I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of like throwing these ideas out and wanting to hear what you think. Yeah, I do. I think you're right. I think um, there's been good research in legend scholarship that has said, you know, legends are going to keep being told not when they stop people stop believing that they're true, but rather than when the fear that is embodied within the legend, when the fear goes away, when that's Mm -hmm. dispelled. And Mm -hmm. so I don't, I think as long as we hold on to the American dream as a viable myth that's available to all, then I think we are going to have to come up with ways to demonize people who don't succeed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the American dream at the end of the day, really, I mean, even progressive liberal, you know, politicians in this country speak proudly and loudly about the American dream, even though the research is clear and to the points that you made, generational wealth, um, the existence of systemic racism, these things mean that there are in fact barriers to pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps. Um, There's also a counter narrative, right? Which says oftentimes, you know, the wealth can be held by a small group of people who may in fact do very little because of the way that investments and in, in, you know, the sort of interest one can make by investing in stock markets, et cetera, just all the sorts of um, structural and systemic benefits we give people who already have capital. Mm-hmm. So I do think that for people to kind of keep swallowing the American dream as a viable narrative, and it is, vi- I mean, certainly there are examples of people being able to, to do it, right? And when we compare the United States to many other countries, mm-hmm. there is great opportunity for socioeconomic growth um, mm-hmm. and, and for, you know, sort of climbing the economic ladder. So I don't want to dismiss, you know, the really great things that can happen in the United States, but we can't mistake that as a sort of a norm that is open to everybody. We have to recognize, you know, that the, the, the playing field is not even. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, to your point, the, the welfare queen story is an incredibly efficient and effective story for making us scared to diverge from the American dream narrative. Um, I think I'm going to have to think about something. I'll, uh, I, I, I think I have to come back to my thought, but first um, I want to talk about 
the idea, you know, we've been talking about like how this welfare legend is such is so embedded in the American consciousness, and you know it's very effective at spreading itself. Um, so much so that you note that even aid recipients, you who challenge the welfare queen myth, when they tell their stories, they also have to explain their situation and how it runs to stereotype, and perhaps even feel the need to uh, justify their choices lest they be shamed for them. Um, even though, in fact, public assistance doesn't really allow anyone to, you know, live large because it's just, you know, it's just really not a lot of money. Uh, I guess repercussions, the result of the stigma and, and uh, around public assistance is that people feel the need to justify their own public assistance by telling, by perpetuating the welfare queen myth as a way of saying, I know they're out there, but that's not mm. me. Mm-hmm. And what's mm-hmm. frustrating about that is, is that without the stigma, they wouldn't feel the ne- that it was necessary to sort of make that initial that initial claim. And so, what I found, and we found, there was a it was a collaborative research project here, um, students and and uh, I as the principal investigator, but then lots of people involved in this research. Um, what we found was that. All, basically, every single aid recipient told at least one story that confirmed kind of a welfare queen narrative. Interesting. It was of course never about themselves. Right. But it was, it was, and it was almost always told early in the conversation. In other words, what they felt they needed to do was that they recognize the dominant story out there. They know that anybody they talk to that isn't receiving public assistance, right. That they are going to have heard these stories and that is going to be their impression about public assistance. And Mm -hmm. so as a way of sort of saying, that's not me, they have to kind of establish allegiance or like, you know, I'm more like you than you think. We're the same. We both hate the concept of the welfare queen. But -hmm. what's interesting is here are people who actually have a front row seat to public assistance, right? So they could tell, you know, personal, I saw this and I saw that kinds of stories. But when they tell their welfare queen story, often it sounds exactly like the legends that non-recipients tell. In other words, it's a friend of a friend. It's somebody Mm -hmm. that somebody told about. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we see the same kinds of shifts of, you know, is this actually a real story or not? And let's be honest, some of them are. I want to be clear. This book is not trying to make the argument that says there is no one out there committing welfare fraud. But there are just as many people committing you know, there are doctors committing fraud. There are lawyers committing fraud. But when we think about doctors and lawyers and some of these prestigious professions, we don't demonize them with a single bad apple. Right. And so it's really honestly appalling that we do, you know, exactly, that's exactly what we do to the poor is that we take the most egregious negative examples and paint everybody with that brush. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't do that to kind of the wealthy elite uh, people in this country. Right. And these uh, people who are aid recipients, they also have to say uh, that they're the exceptions because they sort of, re- they, as you say, they reinforce the welfare narrative queen because not only are they justifying how they're not a welfare queen, they also seem to uh, say that they're exceptions rather than the rule. Right. And and truly, they are the rule and not the exception. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when we look at the statistics, you know, this whole idea that the people on public assistance are all lazy, they don't want to work, you know, and these numbers will shift over the years. But when we were doing, look at these numbers, let's say around 2013 or so, or 14, 15, somewhere in that range, 
you know, we found 84% of people receiving public assistance are working uh, or they're like actively seeking work. The other 16%, you've got people who are primary caregivers. So these are, you know, single parents who are trying to take care of their kids. And so mm-hmm. as a social good, you know, mm-hmm. is it better for them to put their kids in childcare, go work a minimum wage job, make less money at the minimum wage job than they can actually pay for the childcare? I mean, it's a, it's a net right. loss. So right. if you think about sort of, you know, this kind of laziness, no, it's a rational argument that says I can't survive and, right. and, and care for my children in this model. And as right. a social good, we want all Americans to be able to raise their children so that they can become their best selves in society, right? So right. we have this very short-term punitive approach, I think, to people who are poor as opposed to one that says, we all want the same thing. We want everybody to succeed. So let's give folks, you know, the hand up when they need it uh, to actually do that work. So really, when we looked at then, after, you know, the 84% and the people who are primary caregivers, and then there were, uh, economists have this term discouraged workers. So some people who have mm-hmm. just been out looking for jobs and are, in, whether it's because of their location or their access to work or their skill set, because they weren't able to afford college that would give them the leg up. They just finally dropped out of the job pool because they became so discouraged about finding no work. So all said and done, we're talking about maybe 3%, 5%, an incredibly small percent of people who aren't sort of actively looking for work or aren't, who don't maybe want to work, right? Who might be trying to game the system. That's tiny. And when we look at food stamp fraud, the, the numbers, the highest number in the past five years has been around 3%. And the lowest is sort of just around 1%. That that instance of fraud, that's that's incredibly low. And mm-hmm. we would never dream of taking 1% of a population and suggesting that should stand in for everybody else, right? Right. So um, it's incredibly unfair. Yes. And it's also incredible how easily these welfare queen stories are spread um, despite these statistics, despite evidence to the contrary, so all these people who are on aid wealth, uh, who are on public assistance, they you know, they have they are they are genuinely um, they genuinely need it. They're not scamming. Um, they're not scamming people. Yet these stories of um, fraudulent uh, pub- you know welfare queens are running rampant. And I also want to talk a little bit more about why. Are they spreading so easily? And, um, you know, it is deeply embedded into American consciousness, but how are they transmitted? How are they spread? And I want to talk about um, one thing that you mentioned, which I found really interesting, was that, you know, there was a study that showed that the more a story evoked disgust, it was more likely to be remembered. And even if it was untrue, People are just going to repeat the story. They're not going to talk about whether it's true or not. And that's how, you know, these welfare uh, welfare queen stories um, spread. And so there's a little bit of confirmation. I think you said there's a little bit of confirmation bias. Can you talk a little bit more uh, about how these welfare queen stories just really spread? Absolutely. Um, so... There, I'm going to say eight. There are sort of eight major reasons, and that's going to sound like, oh my gosh, I'm going to tune out right now. How boring to listen to eight, <laughs> eight, eight, eight different reasons, right? But I'm just going to kind of very quickly give a couple of them, and then we'll kind of maybe focus on a couple of the key ones that I think are particularly interesting findings um, in this research. But as okay. you say, um, disgust, the negative, 
that sticks with us. Literally, there's brain research that says we process negative emotion and negative responses differently, actually in a different part of our brain than positive ones. And by processing it differently, we remember it differently. Um, and so, you know, meme theory and some of the meme research um, also confirms that. I'll also just throw out that a lot of this is now being spread through social media. And we know from mm -hmm. the algorithms and how they work that things that sort of disgust people that are kind of, you know, bring shock, that's what people respond to. And when people respond to something, the algorithm pushes it forward into people's, you know, platforms more often than things that people aren't responding to. That sort of makes sense in the abstract, but it's horrifying in terms of what it's pushing in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. So those are a couple of the, just, just the kind of the negative nature of, of these stories. The other is, of course, is stories ask us to cherry pick dramatic moments in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. Stories have beginning, middles, and ends. They have a climax. They have a, you know, there's some sort of big conclusion. Uh, that is not our general daily life. So if general daily life is hard work, plugging along, trying to get my kids fed, et cetera, that's not an interesting story. It's the, uh, um, it's the outliers. That's what we tend to focus on because they're more interesting. So just by, by virtue of the fact that, the, that we talk about public assistance in the form of narrative already is going to perhaps push forward the outlier and the unusual. And those, because we know that most folks are doing the right thing and doing good work, they are going to favor these fraud stories. There are other reasons that go back to just, we have been demonizing poverty for a long time. We have been demonizing welfare as a handout for a long time. Mm -hmm. And of course, because it's been racialized, all the stereotypes of African-Americans or Latino immigrants, all of those stereotypes get sort of glossed onto welfare. So all of those reasons are perhaps some of the reasons why this is such a negative portrayal and that negativity to your point about kind of some of these studies that show that we're going to pass on the kind of things that disgust us or anger us uh, the most, that's why these, these kind of negative stories about welfare get shared the most. Now, here's what our research found that I think is particularly interesting. First, most of the stories that people were telling about public assistance were eyewitness narratives. So mm -hmm. like that story that started this whole project of the woman in the grocery store who sort of sees somebody, you know, trying to buy uh, dog food with welfare stamps and buy steaks for the dog instead you know, that's an eyewitness story that is, that provides a perspective that requires a series of logical leaps. It requires the viewer to fill in with a series of stereotypes. In other words, that we don't know that woman's backstory. We have no idea, for example, one of the women we worked with had a dog because she was a survivor of domestic abuse. She needed protection. And she needed something to sort of kind of love and to love back the psychological trauma that she had been through. This dog was incredibly helpful. So all those sort of, you know, oh my God, I can't believe this woman on welfare. She can't even, you know, feed herself, but she's feeding a dog. Okay. Well, let's look at the story behind the story here. Right. But, mm -hmm. but an eyewitness account in a grocery store doesn't provide that perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're getting these stories where we're relying on, all of these kind of biases and stereotypes just to finish out the narrative. And mm -hmm. so that's particularly problematic because we need protagonists and antagonists. The other is something that we haven't talked enough about, and it's uncomfortable because it's never comfortable saying, I think you lied. Right. But research shows that there is a phenomenon 
We know, for example, that when people tell a story, that will often shorten the narrative distance. And what I mean by that is, if my mother has told me a story about my grandmother, I will tell it again and I say, you know, my mom told me this story about my grandma. It's two people removed, right? Mm-hmm. But then when my kids say it, they might just say my grandma. And when their kids say it, it might still be just their grandma. In other words, we tend to sort of shorten and shorten the narrative distance. There's a wonderful scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off where they ask where Ferris Bueller is. And the one of the students raised her hand and she said something like, you know, uh, my boyfriend's girlfriend's sister's uh, mom's uh, best friend whose co-worker's nephew saw him pass out at 31 Flavors. I guess it's mm-hmm. pretty serious. Mm-hmm. So it's funny. It's a funny moment because whoever tracks that many sort of, you know, the conduit of the legend, right? How many of those different speakers to get to a kind of a story. Instead, we often just say a friend of a friend. So the newsletter for the study of contemporary legend is actually called Fof, friend of a friend, because right. it's such a common phenomenon. So mm-hmm. what does all that say? It says that when we tell stories, we often shorten the narrative distance. So it becomes just a friend of a friend because no one believes a story. If I told you, well, I heard it from a coworker who heard it from her sister, who heard it from, it's out the window. We assume that that story has been told so many times by so many people that its truth and veracity has been changed so much that people have embellished and they've gotten facts wrong that you can't possibly believe it. All right, that we know. What our research started to show, and we've seen it since the 1960s, scholars have sort of chimed in, but in very small measure, that we don't just sort of reduce narrative distance in the third person, but we can actually reduce it so much that a third person narrative becomes a first person narrative. Mm-hmm. So in the 1960s, Richard Slotkin does some research with union workers. And he finds that some of the union workers start telling stories of having like, you know, they're like, I remember seeing, you know, and they describe this sort of great heroic moment, a moment that happened before they were born. And they're not doing it intentionally. It's that they've heard this story so much. They've entered into the story world so much that it feels like part of their experience. And mm-hmm. so they shared it as a first person narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, there was a, a, a great research um, project. It was actually done by a student who was interviewing their family members about this kind of uh, a ghost haunting. And she interviews her, I think it's her father, perhaps, maybe, um, uh, let's say, you know, let's say in January, at the beginning of the semester. And he tells a story about how his co-worker found this like dead body in this in the factory. And then there was this ghost, etc. Well, three months later, she goes back and she's interviewing him again. And he tells the story again. It's a new audience. This time, he's the one that finds the body. Mm -hmm. Now, again, he's not trying to be tricky, probably, right? But it made a better story for him. And it didn't seem to be much of a leap for him Mm -hmm. to just enter that that first person. Now, let's take those two pieces together at the risk of being a little too long in this answer. The eyewitness accounts... And this idea of moving from the third person to the first person, those go beautifully together because no one's going to move from the third person into the first person in a story where they have to step into the role of like the main protagonist, right? No one's going to tell a story about themselves as the welfare queen. No one's going to tell, you know, move themselves into the story and say, oh, yes, I got a bucket of, you know, Kentucky fried chicken and there was a rat in it, right? Rather, you're going to move yourself into this observing role. So Mm -hmm. welfare narratives already have this kind of like this 
huge, like the, the dominant you know, narrative genre here are these eyewitnesses stories. And then we have this phenomenon where it's easy to move from third person into first person for eyewitness stories. It's the perfect storm to basically take a few examples of fraud and multiply them with all of these different people saying it happened to me, it happened to me. When in fact, it may have only happened, you know, a few times across the country with these different people, but we've all internalized them individually. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of maybe, you know, a little bit of the reason why the negative stories about welfare and this idea of the welfare queen have spread so much, so fast, so often. There's lots more, of course, to say about why we keep telling welfare queen stories that we can get into as well. But I think that's maybe... I was going to say, that's the short answer. That was a ridiculously long answer, but still it's a complex question, but with right. some really interesting um, dimensions to it that are specific to narrative as a genre. And I just want to kind of highlight that. That's what folklorists do, right? Is that we, we think about the form that people are sharing this information in. We're not just talking about public assistance in these abstract essays. We're telling mm -hmm. stories and stories mm -hmm. shape our experiences Mm-hmm. You know, and that was one of the things that, you know, I mean, you say that was a really long answer, but I found it really fascinating because, you know, when we when we hear, you know, when we think of a story from a friend or a friend, we immediately think, you know, we 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 doubt it. But if we hear somebody say, Yes, I witnessed it with my very own eyes, we tend to uh we tend to believe them. It becomes more believable. But what you're saying is that these uh personal first person witness I saw it myself stories are actually unreliable um, because these rumors are uh, or because these welfare legends have um, uh, have spread so widely and deeply that they uh, that uh, first person narratives can become very unreliable and in fact I guess you had used this term uh, legends are dialogic um, that they can uh, change and morph depending on who is telling it and uh, for what reason. And, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm really thinking about some of the people who have uh, repeated these stories to me. Um, you know, when I, when I, in my 20s, when I lived in San Francisco, my roommate uh, worked at a fancy grocery store, and he actually told me a welfare queen story. He was telling me about how he saw, and he said it was a Russian woman, and, you know, she came in with her furs, and she uh, bought she bought things with food stamps and she went out to her uh, Beamer or I, I think it was a Mercedes. And so he's like, he saw it with, um, you know, his own eyes. I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, I really believed it. Until, but now what you're telling me is that he might have just really internalized this welfare queen story as something that he saw himself, whereas it may have just been something that's, you know, floating out in the air and he took it as something that he, you know, as a, a as a true story. Well, and I, I will say um, we, we made a point because we knew so many of these stories were located in grocery stores. We made a point of seeking out grocery store clerks and cashiers mm -hmm. because they are going to, you know, they're going to encounter literally thousands of people checking out every day. Mm -hmm. So if anybody is going to have, you know, this type of story, it should be cashiers. So mm -hmm. my guess is I don't, I, you know, I don't want to throw your, your friend under the bus. My guess is that he probably did see something very, you know, that that story probably happened. Um, what may be different is whether it was a Mercedes, whether he really saw the car she got into, or whether that kind of motif, that part of the legend got attached. 
that's where I would start kind of maybe questioning just a little bit. So, you know, the, some of the details that might kind of, um, from the kind of the, 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 the key legend that everybody recognizes, you know, what are those bits and pieces that might have been kind of pulled from there to complete his story, right? Mm-hmm. Especially the more that he tells it. Um, yeah. so, and again, because there are real, you know, cases of this, what I would say though is, is here's the other thing we want to ask. Um, because I, as I said before, it's uncomfortable to say you're a liar, right? And it would be very uncomfortable for you to turn to him and say, I know you're a grocery store clerk and you're telling me this is what you saw, but I don't believe you, right? That doesn't go well in social interactions. Right. And again, like I say, it very well may be true, but here's what I would ask us to do as people who are hearing these kinds of stories is, is think about the sort of story behind the story. So Mm -hmm. for example, we talked to a number of people who received public assistance for three months. You know, not people who were on public assistance for years and years and years that we talked to. I mean, that was the majority of the people we talked to. But there were a lot of folks who, you know, lived an upper middle class lifestyle. And then their husband died and they didn't have insurance or they went through a divorce and it was messy and things were tied up in courts and they had no disposable income. In other words, public assistance is often used to help people in those interstitial gaps, those gaps where you went from, you know, doing fine to to not doing well at all, and you need some help getting back on your feet. And you don't change your wardrobe in three months, and you don't change your car in three months. So absolutely, there are people who, for a short amount of time, were driving a Mercedes and then found themselves needing aid. But you know, selling your Mercedes and buying a cheaper car actually makes no financial sense. Yes. Especially if that sort of nice car has been paid off, right? So right. It, it is quite possible to have these stories enacted. It's just that I would question whether we're seeing egregious fraud or whether we're just seeing somebody making a series of rational decisions as they work to get back on their feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just, you know, without speaking to the person, we're really seeing an incomplete picture. That's exactly right. And when we don't have the complete picture, that's the sort of the danger of this narrative tradition, because it keeps wanting to give us really terrible conclusions, really, you know, race, racist and gendered stereotypes. And if that's mm-hmm. the data, if that's the, if that's the sort of the building blocks that we have, it's hard to keep ignoring them. Right. And it's just very easy to fall back on those stories. I'll give you an example. There was one guy who told a story. He was non-aid recipient. And he said, oh, you know, I just, I hate those recipients. I, you know, I was in McDonald's and, and there were all these women and he described, he never said they were black, but he describes hair weaves, long fingernails, designer bags, right? So he's clearly dog whistling to us, giving these, these kind of symbols to tell us these are young African-American women. And he says, you know, they've got the nicest cell phones, whatever. And there they are, you know, in the middle of the day, they're not working. They're at McDonald's and they've got these fancy clothes, et cetera. It's ridiculous. Well, he, what crucial piece of information does he not know at all in that story? He has mm-hmm. no idea if those people are receiving public assistance. Mm-hmm. None. Right. It's just he's taken a stereotype of the welfare queen and he's now applying it to anybody that he sees that has, you know, hair, nice hair that's been done in a salon and, you know, nice fingernails and a cell phone. All of these symbols of like sort of welfare fraud but they may not even be on welfare. Mm-hmm. That's how strong of a pull these stories are and how you know, powerful they can be to guide our interpretation. Sorry, go right. ahead. 
Right. No, and I was just saying, and how deeply racism is embedded in our uh, in in our consciousness. That's exactly right. And oftentimes, that that's all it took. You know, for some people, if they see a person of color with any item of luxury, they must have gotten it from fraud. I mean, honestly, that is where some folks are moving. Now, the narrative gives them this little bit of plausible deniability, and that's what also is kind of maybe so insidious, but also powerful about these stories is, you know, it's just what I saw. I'm not saying anything. I'm just telling you what I saw, right? I'm not a racist. I'm just telling you these black women, you know, were, Mm -hmm. you know, messing, had all this stuff, right? Um, And, uh, and Ange Marie Hancock, who is a political scientist, um, great scholar, did some work on looking at some of these stereotypes and how they shape the current welfare um, policy of today, literally the the policy that Bill Clinton signed into law in 1996, all of these stereotypes were being pulled in, and they all, almost all, all but two, you could point directly black back to black women, mm-hmm. to stereotypes about mm-hmm. black women, and the, and the two that didn't were issues around Medicaid fraud and issues around food stamp fraud. But mm-hmm. what's interesting is if you expand beyond the black woman and you and you look at the stories about welfare that people have been telling food stamp fraud was the number one that's the number one story people tell right is buying steaks and crab legs or alcohol or whatever with food stamps so that you know the the narrative tradition absolutely explains that stereotype and then the welfare fraud one that's the other big narrative piece of that person's not really disabled right this sort of questioning that if you're receiving disability well you know you better be basically in a wheelchair you know, missing limbs and be blind. I mean, there the, right. the the bar for what is disabled or not in this country when we start making those kind of assumptions is ridiculous. Um, so I think you know the racist piece is just it's an incredibly important piece of this of this discussion. Um, and the few parts that it maybe doesn't capture is is captured in other aspects of the narrative tradition. So you say that when we encounter these kinds of, um, you know, fraud stories, we should take a doubt-centered approach. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by doubt-centered approach? I ha- go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, there's, in Legend Scholarship, Elliot Oring in particular had proffered um, this idea of a truth-centered focus, a truth-centered approach to legend. And I think it's a really important uh, addition to our understanding of how legend works. In other words, that what distinguishes a legend, what makes it a legend, is that we that it's credible, it's plausible, that there are these efforts that storytellers use to make it seem truthful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, an excellent approach. But I think there's another approach. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying we haven't done this other approach and we should be, is taking a doubt-centered approach, which is to say... What's really the hallmark of a legend is not, you know, that we're sort of angling for truth, but rather that we doubt something. So, you know, if there's a news story out there and it comes from a credible source, we don't call that a legend, right? It does all the things to to suggest truth, but we're not doubting it. So we don't use that term. Mm -hmm. But if we start to doubt, that's when we start calling something a legend. Mm -hmm. You know, when there's debate about veracity, that's when we start calling it a legend. So what I suggest is, is that if that's what we're using as our definitional term, not just as scholars, but in the vernacular use of legend, right? I mean, when we, when in the vernacular use, if somebody just says, well, that's a legend, they're basically saying that's not true. 
Now, scholars would say, well, what it really means is it might not be true. Like, you know, we're willing, scholars are much more willing to say that there are stories told as legends that could be true, right? Mm -hmm. But the point is doubt is what is defining the genre. And so what I suggest in this book is that's the approach we should be taking to legend. And so it's not necessarily that we should single out welfare legends, um, you know, to doubt, but, but other legends we should, you know, not doubt. It's rather that with all of these legends, we should be asking ourselves, when people hear these stories, what are the parts of the story that they are doubting? And I would argue there are three. First, you might doubt whether it happened at all. Basic factual truth, right? Second, you might doubt some of the sort of implications or the interpretation, right? So, um, I believe that there was a Russian woman who, you know, had fur coats and bought a bunch of fancy food and got into an, uh, a, a Mercedes and used food stamps. So I might, I might accept that as the facts, but I might doubt your interpretation that that's fraud and that she doesn't actually need that help. And then there's the third place that we might doubt, and that's the generalizability. So I might say, okay, I believe the story. Okay, I believe she was committing fraud but I don't believe that we should be using that story as a way to understand welfare in this country today. And so that's this approach then I think, uh, this doubt-centered approach is saying, let's pay attention to all three of those levels, factual truth, interpretation, and generalizability. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, that makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that, uh, that is something that people should keep in mind when they encounter these kinds of stories and not just about welfare, but I think just legends in general, but how about for something that people, you know, and I think it can be useful, but for people who don't even think that they are dealing with a legend, then what can they really do? And I'm going to give an example that is non-welfare. So for example, um, you know, um, let's say the COVID vaccine, right? There are some people who are going to believe that the COVID vaccine does not work because there are a couple of breakthrough cases. And they'll, you know, they'll, um, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have these other kinds of um, stories that, you know, I'm going to exaggerate here, like there's a chip there or you'll get sick or, mm -hmm. it, you know, it does something else to you, but they genuinely believe it to be true. They don't recognize it as a welfare, I mean, I'm sorry, as a legend, what do we do then? Yeah, so one, we read Andrew Kita's work, who's a folklorist who's done some great, uh, great research into issues of, um, of COVID and, and sort of, sort of basically not believing science, um, mm -hmm. whether it's vaccinations, um, broadly, um, or specific to COVID. But honestly, what do we do? Um, it's hard because it's very easy to say, well, the stuff I believe is true and the stuff you believe is legend, right? Right. Or is wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I actually give an example. I, I am going to come back to COVID, but I give an example in the book about sort of the birther movement with Obama, right? Mm -hmm. So the people who are, who are saying, you're, you know, that Obama wasn't, you know, born in the United States, that he's not a legal citizen, um, they're convinced that the legend is the one that Obama's telling, which is, I am a citizen. Right. While the majority, I think still happily, the majority of the country who's seen, you know, who 
believes that Hawaii was in fact a state and, and you know, the birth certificate is real, says, no, the legend here is this birther story that you've concocted. So depending on your perspective, you're going to call one thing a legend and one thing truth. Uh-huh. And so the same thing is going to be the case with COVID and vaccines is that positionality of, you know, how you view the information. Um, I think it's useful to call them, maybe to pull them both in as part of the legend process. So we may not want to label one story a legend or not, at least at first, and certainly not if you're trying to have a conversation with people. Because the minute you tell somebody your story is a legend and mine is true, they're going to close off, right? Why would I engage in a discussion where you already think I'm crazy or wrong? Right. But instead say, okay, well, we have these two stories. How do we make sense of them? Let's look for evidence. Right. What's the evidence that you have? What's the evidence that I have? What's the evidence that's out there that neither of us have that it would be nice to have? And then start building an argument from there. And I think that's what we sort of lost somewhere along the way um, of the kind of the evidence based argument. And I think we lost it for, well, a number of reasons. But one of them is the echo chamber. And there's been great research about how this works online, but also in the media. Right. 50 years ago, we didn't have the choice, you know, to to only watch, let's say, um, MSNBC or only watch Fox News. You know, there were, here were the news, here were the four channels that you had access to. They were all kind of giving you basically the same story. And at the water cooler, you could kind of negotiate the the interpretation, but you weren't getting fundamentally different stories. So there was a Mm -hmm. foundation for you to work from. Now we're so isolated and segregated in the news consumption that we have that we're not getting that kind of cross-pollination. We're not hearing those different ideas we're hearing the same story over and over and over. And we know from psychological research, if we've heard a story more than once from multiple sources, it feels true. Even if we have never applied kind of what we would expect, you know, sort of a kind of an evidence-based model, even if we've never applied evidence, just by hearing it repeated by multiple people multiple of times, it feels true to us. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's happened. So I think if we can, in these discussions and in these debates, if we can just sort of peel back, you know, um, those kind of the the same stories we're hearing over and over and look for evidence, I think that's how we're going to progress forward. Um, But it's going to be hard, honestly. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this country, those ideologies are, have become part of our identity, So somebody will say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. And so once you've said, I'm a something, the platform that comes with that, when you challenge one of my platform beliefs or one of my ideologies that goes along with that label, you're challenging who I am. And that's an uncomfortable space to be in. Mm -hmm. So in your last chapter, you provide some um, solutions or some uh, strategies for challenging these uh, welfare legends. Um, I'm going to just list them out, and you know, I'm going to ask you to uh, you know say a little bit more about them. So first, you say identify canonical narratives uh, to identify identify fears and anxieties, and number three, identify narratives that sidestep or alleviate those fears and counter the canonical narratives. So can you tell me a little bit more about this strategy, this three-part strategy that you have for challenging uh, welfare queen legends? 
Sure. Yeah. So um, the first, the canonical narratives, what I mean by a canonical narrative is that uh, like we talk about something being in the canon, right? That, you know, Shakespeare mm-hmm. is in the sort of the English language canon of great literature. Um, so a canonical narrative is a, is a narrative that is widespread and, and widely recognized as being kind of maybe the dominant way of explaining something. And so if we don't know what those stories are, it's hard to counter them. It's hard to know what is, what do I need to be responding to, right? Once we kind of identify those, and with the Welfare Queen legends, it was pretty easy to do that. Um, those stories just kept getting repeated again and again and again. Then it's important to understand, well, what are the fear? What are those stories expressing? What are people doing with those stories? <coughs> Excuse me. And it's it's expressing these different fears about how society is working, right? And what's maybe not working about society. So you have to be able to counter the fear if you're actually going to counter the ideas that are being expressed in these stories. And then the third kind of step there is once you sort of identify those is how do you find a story that's familiar enough that a person can kind of latch onto it, understand it, take it in as their own, but have it still kind of tweak the dominant narrative here so that we can subvert the stereotypical images and stories and offer a more accurate narrative. Because one thing we didn't talk much about, but a half the book is is filled with, are the life experience stories of people receiving public assistance. So how do we get those stories to compete with these kinds of legends that are being told kind of from the outside in? Let's what how do we get the stories from the inside out? And so mm-hmm. I suggest a couple of things is, is we can look structurally for familiar stories because we know from narrative research that if we recognize kind of the archetypal structure or the narrative structure of something and we kind of, we can follow it better. And because it's familiar, it's more comfortable and we'll accept it, even if the ideas are foreign to us. So one would mm-hmm. be like the story behind the story, right? Um, right. We're actually quite used to the kind of welfare queen story. So what if we start telling these stories and say, yeah, well, you know, I saw Kira, this is a friend of mine. She was in the grocery store and, you know, she had a really nice business suit on and her hair and nails were like impeccable. And she was buying food with food stamps. Um, But Kira is somebody I work with and she went through an incredibly awful divorce that involved abuse and, um, both psychological, primarily psychological, but, and emotional, but also some physical forms and had to sort of leave town I mean, left, literally left the state she was in with her two children and was in a new place and needed to find work, et cetera. Well, how do you find a job, right? Do you dress in your worst clothes or do you dress in your nicest clothes? And that's what she was doing. So she's wearing the clothes she already owned. Wore these nice clothes, you know, and yes, she was getting the groceries and yes, she was on public assistance for four or five months as she found that new job. So we start with a story that's very comfortable and familiar, but then we subvert it by saying, here's the story behind the story. So that's one option. Another is there's another kind of dominant narrative we're comfortable with, which is this idea of when bad things happen to good people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, An author, Kushner, I think it was in the 70s, writes this book titled literally When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And we get that. We understand that the world isn't always fair. And so we can tell stories about Diane, for example, who worked all of her life as a CNA, you know, giving and giving and giving and somebody who was in the healthcare industry, caring for older people, et cetera. She was working out. She was eating a healthy diet, you know, in great health by all accounts and got cancer. Right. And that cancer, because the jobs that she had as a CNA, she often didn't have health insurance. 
She didn't have a nest egg put away. She didn't have that support network that could kind of help her through this period. She didn't have a spouse or children of an age that could kind of help her through this process. And it really just brought her from a kind of a, you know, not upper, but just a sort of middle-class lifestyle to absolutely not being able to pay her rent, utilities, or food, right? And, you know, she was going through chemotherapy and radiation. And, and that is an incredibly common story. Healthcare, lack of healthcare was mm-hmm. honestly at the, at, the, at the foundation of so many of these stories. Mm. Um, and then there's the redemption story, right? You can tell stories of people who, yes, sometimes, you know, sometimes we do things. All of us have done things in our life that have implications or repercussions. And we realize, okay, maybe that wasn't the greatest choice in the world, right? Has, are any of us free from those mistakes? The problem is if you're middle class or upper middle class and you make a mistake that lands you in jail when you smoke some marijuana someday, somewhere, sometime, you can probably afford a lawyer and probably get it expunged from your record and you can probably bounce back pretty quickly. But if you don't have all those resources, that one little mistake can really change your life entirely. So how can we tell these redemption stories of people who have made a mistake that we might relate to? And yet show how people are striving to get back. Mm-hmm. Now, all of those stories have the potential to be told with this theory that Rob Willer, who's a sociologist, has, um, has coined moral reframing theory. And the idea is, is that let's say I'm a progressive liberal and I'm talking to a conservative friend. Research has shown that I, as a liberal, am going to value things like um, equality, uh, caring, and support. While my conservative friend is going to value things like loyalty, purity, and respect for authority. Now, we could argue all of those morals are good, but if I start from with this set of morals and the person I'm talking to starts with that set of morals, what we found is if I tell my stories that are all framed around issues of equality and caring and things like that, the other person, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Those aren't a set of morals that are guide, are the primary, primary guiding principles that they are coming to the table with. Mm-hmm. But if I tell my stories as stories of purity, right? So I can tell my redemption story as one of kind of regaining purity. And mm-hmm. I can tell my story of when bad things happen to good people as one about respecting authority, that they've done all the right things. And yet still this thing happened to them. Mm-hmm. Right. If I can frame the, my story with with the values of the person I'm talking to, I have a much better uh, 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 much better chance of convincing them that they're we should be paying more attention to stories of people receiving public assistance rather than the stories of people who are on the outside viewing people who may or may not be receiving public assistance. So mm-hmm. it's choosing a good story. It's thinking about the structure of that story. It's making sure that it's familiar and comfortable to the person you're talking to. And it's framing it with a set of morals and values that are going to be consonant with their own. Right. Okay. So um, finding the story behind the story um, and sharing it in a way that is uh, in a way that the other person will hear it. That is, you know, more aligned to their morals. Do I have that right? Right. Okay. Right. And I mean, so story behind the story is one of them, but like these redemption stories and these when bad things happen to good people. I mean, there's a number of different narrative structures that we can use, but yes, that's exactly right. 
Okay. Yeah, well, let me say this, let me be clear. Oh, no, sorry, go ahead. just one thing to add. Um, in an ideal world, of course, there's no middle person here at all. That we're actually, it would be great if people could actually hear these stories from people who are receiving public assistance, right? You know, that's an ideal world. But because of the stigma of public assistance, because of the just what lived the lived experience of living where you're trying to pay your bills and you're trying to kind of just manage daily life, it is an incredible burden to figure out a way to keep putting people who are receiving public assistance in the public eye and keep saying, tell your story, tell your story, tell your story, right? There are wonderful ways where we can make that happen. And I think what, you know, I mean, I hope that this, this book is one way to give, I mean, these stories, I'm not retelling these stories. These stories are in the words of the people themselves. So I'm trying to kind of, you know, not just stand here as a mouthpiece for other people, but all of us are going to be in that role, right? Anytime we hear a story that replicates the welfare queen legend, I would argue we have an obligation if we know that those aren't particularly true or if they're incredibly skewed, we have an obligation to respond. And so what I'm suggesting in this book is let's respond with real stories about real people, but in ways that can be heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, uh, there, your book is really rich and has, um, you know, it has a lot of uh, rich analysis, and you also have many of the stories, many stories from the aid recipients themselves, which challenged the welfare queen. Um, but I've taken a lot of your time, and I feel like I should probably let you go about your day. <laughs> um, but <laughs> as a last thing, is there anything else you want people to understand and know about welfare legends? Have we? Is there something that you know, that we didn't talk about that you think is really important for people to know? Uh, sure. I'll say just a, a couple things. And one, you are definitely not wasting my time. Uh, you know, this is what faculty and people who write books, I think, live for is a chance to, to you know, talk with other people about the work they've done. So this has been a true pleasure. Um, but I would say a couple of things. One is I think there's a knee-jerk reaction for us to think that an effective way to respond, um, you know, to these welfare legends is to talk about corporate welfare, is to say, yeah, but look at all the subsidies going to these rich companies or to these farmers mm -hmm. or whatever. The problem with those stories is it just continues to demonize the concept of public assist assistance. And so one thing I hope this book does is that it challenges this idea that government assistance is a bad thing. And I know that politically that that's going to that's gonna be easier or harder for people to swallow depending on your political stripes. But... Um, Many would argue, and I certainly would be one of them, that the government is there to support and help its people. Exactly. And that is what public assistance does. And so we can't keep telling stories that say, yeah, well, you know, these folks are bad. Well, look at how bad these folks are. No, let's just let's just erase or try to sort of, you know, destroy the stigma around public assistance, period. So that's one thing. The other, I think I would say is let's also not be lured into thinking that if we just tell success stories about people on public assistance, that that's going to do the work, right? That's what Bill Clinton did when he was signing this new sweeping legislation was to kind of trot forward a couple of public people who had received public assistance and say, look how they did it. You know, they received this amount of money and now they're a successful whatever. What we found is actually when we go back and find those people that Bill Clinton trotted out, they're not doing well now. In other words, 
you know, oftentimes this is a cyclical or it's a yo-yo, you know, getting somebody fundamentally out of generational poverty is really, really hard. And mm-hmm. so what we don't want to do is think that fairly meager public assistance programs equal, as long as you work hard, equal success. Rather, what we need to be hearing are the real stories of saying, yes, this helps people and now they're able to do X, Y, and Z, but these are the challenges they continue to face because those are the real stories. So I just don't want us to be kind of lulled into thinking that a success, a welfare success story is kind of our, our solution to the welfare queen legends. Um, and what I would say yeah, is ahead. also that, um, you know, to turn the eye, to, to make welfare not a bad, dirty word and return it back to its original, or I won't say original meaning, but to have the connotation of welfare, of looking out for people's well-being, as opposed to welfare being a handout. That's exactly right. And that's something that's one of the reasons I use welfare sort of unapologetic. I guess I do apologize a little bit. I mean, I do explain why I use welfare in the title of this book. And why I use it throughout is because for exactly that reason, we sort of, I think it's important to reclaim that word. You know, when mm-hmm. we talk about child welfare, that mean, mm-hmm. that still means good. Like we haven't lost entirely the idea that welfare can mean good things. Right. Um, Those but it's going to take a lot of work. Kids are not just really, asking for a handout. Okay. Yeah, right. We think about child welfare, like what's best for the child, right? So why, when we take child away, is all of a sudden it become this, you know, horrible uh, you know, entity or institution or, or, or issue. So, um, I agree. And I, you know, I often use public assistance because I do, if people do have entrenched negative views of welfare, you know, I want them to be able to come to this conversation without all that baggage, but ultimately I do use it throughout so that we can remember this is the same thing. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, when you hear the term welfare, please remember it's public assistance. Please remember it's public aid. Please remember, you know, that two thirds of us at some point in our lives will use some form of public assistance in this country. Two thirds of us, mm-hmm. you know, so this isn't some tiny little weird minority somewhere. This is this is America. And we just need to have a somewhat more empathetic view, I think, um, of our of our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Well said. I agree. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I think it's really uh, been insightful and valuable. Um, The book is Overthrowing the Queen, uh, Telling Stories of Welfare in America by Dr. Tom Moe, Professor of History History and Anthropology at Butler University. Um, I'm Nancy Yan, one of the hosts for the Folklore Channel of New Books Network. So thanks, Tom. Thank you, Nancy. It's been a pleasure.